0: We're really trying to show people what investigative journalism looks like. I hope that if someone listens to both seasons of our podcasts, at the end of the day, they have like a much clearer vision of like what what it means to be an in investigative journalism.
1: Podcasting isn't just a medium for talking about movies or pop culture. Investigative journalists are using podcasting to uncover government corruption and injustice. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Joining me in the studios uh, are my fellow producer Nicole Agrisco. Hey Nicole. Hey Mike. Great having you here. This is going to be fun because this we're going to get to talk to podcast about podcasting with and about one of my favorite podcasts with Samara Freemark. She's the senior producer of In the Dark. Welcome to the, uh, back to the podcast Samara.
0: Thanks so much. It's great to be back with you.
1: Okay. Well, um last week actually it was a couple of weeks ago Nicole and I were talking about podcasts that we were listening to and she was telling me that you are you caught up on the second season of in the dark and I said like no I've only gotten a couple of episodes into it so I've been trying to catch up with her we were big fans of the first season could we let's let's sort of back up a little bit and sort of talk about that to tell people about in the dark how did you form that and you know what was that first season like
0: so, In the Dark was kind of born out of this new team that was created at American Public Media, which is out of Minnesota Public Radio, we've got we've just got a lot of alphabet soup of companies that we're involved with. But um, APM Reports was this group that was created, a new investigative and documentary team that was created at American Public Media. And um, I was on the team, Madeline Barron, our host, was on the team. And uh, Madeline and I, right when the team was founded a couple of years ago, we were out taking a walk and just talking about story ideas and really getting to know each other. We didn't know each other before. And um, she started telling me about this idea that she had for a story on this very famous child abduction in Minnesota that had happened almost 30 years ago, the abduction of a, a boy named Jacob Wetterling. And uh, this is a very well-known story in Minnesota. Everyone knows about this story but what was interesting about the way she was thinking about it was she was interested in this question of why this case hadn't been solved, because when we started working on the podcast, the case had not been solved. And this case that had gotten tons of resources that seemed like a pretty simple case to solve, like what had gone wrong. And so we decided to to look at that question, and we knew that answering that question was going to take a lot of time. A lot of time, both to do the reporting and also to tell the story, and so doing it as a podcast seemed like a form that would work really well for that story. And so that's how the first season of In the Dark was born.
1: The thing I liked about it, you know, it was very journalistic. It was, you know, it was true crime, but it wasn't. It was very much reporting and also sort of examining the reporting that went on during the intervening thirty years or so when when that person was missing. That you had a lot of. um you know, interviews. And I seem to remember there were phone messages and news reports. So it was really kind of sound rich, which I thought was really great for a podcast, which, of course, is, you know, audio. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, it's yeah. I mean, it was a nice kind of combination of our skills. You know, Madeline comes from the print world and the investigative, the straight, hard-nosed investigative journalism world. And I actually came from the more narrative, like, sound-rich documentary side of things. I used to work at a place called Radio Diaries that uh, did these, like, very, very sound-rich documentary-style pieces. So, yeah, I think that the season... The whole project is kind of a marriage of those two things.
1: We had uh, actually, uh, coincidentally, we had Joe Richmond on the podcast a few weeks ago. No kidding. Radio uh, Diaries.
0: Oh, yeah. I used to work there. Yeah, I was there for about five years.
1: Which is uh, also a pretty great podcast. Great, great audio storytelling. So, I mean, the first season was very much a success. You know, a lot of people were talking about it. And also the fact that... You know, towards the end of it, that cold case suddenly got very hot. And then, you know, somebody came forward and confessed. So that helps, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so that actually happened right before we started airing. We had released our trailer and it was like it was supposed to be two weeks before we started airing episodes. And there was this huge break in the case, which was Great. I mean, it's it's like a good thing. It's a good thing for, for the Wetterling family. It's a good thing for Minnesota. It's just like a good thing. It was a little bit of a production challenge for us. But if the podcast had had the focus, I might have talked about this last time I was here, but if our podcast had really had a focus of like, who did this crime, it would have been more difficult to adjust the podcast to deal with the news, but because the focus was always, why did it take so long to solve this case, or why why hasn't this case been solved yet? It's a very easy transition from that to why did it take so long to solve the case. And so it actually didn't end up changing what we were doing very much. If anything, it just allowed us to be stronger with our findings. Because all of a sudden, all of these things that had been kind of hypothetical before, you know, like, this seems like a problem. This seems like a lead that they should have followed up on. All of a sudden, we could be much more definitive and say, like, yes, we know who did this. So we know that was a problem. We know they should have followed up on this. We know they made this mistake. And so it really strengthened the journalism.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the fact that you were able to sort of rejigger the the podcast so that it took in the new information, it was able to, it was a much more, you know, satisfying experience. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of, I, I don't want to make, I just realized I was going to make it sort of this cold, crass <laughs> comment about, yeah, podcasts podcast would be better if these crimes are solved, but actually people's lives would be better if these crimes right. were solved. I think that's, that's the the correct way, human way to answer that, not, not the cold impersonal podcast producer way.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, there's something that we always say, which is we say this a lot, but it's it's like as as journalists, like we don't actually like mysteries. Like mysteries are not a good thing for us. Like we want answers and we want to be able to state things clearly and tell people what's actually going on. And so anything that can lead us in that direction is good for us.
1: So In the Dark got a lot of acclaim. People loved it. So did you envision a second season after you'd wrap that up?
0: Yeah, we always, yeah, we definitely wanted to do a second season. I mean, there's There are so few opportunities to do the kind of work that we have been allowed to do. I mean, to be able to spend multiple staff members' time on doing reporting that feels very important and do that over the course of a year or more and then have really an indefinite amount of time to tell those stories. You know, we, in a podcast, we have as much time as we want. Like, the only constraints are what's good for the story, like, what are the, the right editorial and production choices? And so, I mean, that is a very... That is a wonderful position to be in. And so, of course, we wanted to do a second season because it's just there's a there's a level of of editorial freedom there that just doesn't exist in other spaces.
1: So how did you become aware of the Curtis Flowers case?
0: So after the first season, I actually checked out for three months and had a baby. (laughs) Um, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Like two days after the podcast stopped airing. So while I was gone, I think they spent a couple of months just kind of – Madeline and our producer, Natalie, we were – at that point, we were just three staff members – spent a couple of months just sort of putting stuff back together. There's just a lot of – when you report something and work on something so intensely, there's just a lot of pickup that has to happen at the end. But we did put out a call out when I came back a couple months later. we, We did an update. Episode, uh, there had been a little some updates in the case. And so we did a short update episode. And in that update episode, we put out a call out for stories and we set up an email address, which I'll put in a plug for it, is investigate this at apmreports.org. So we just said, hey, if you've, if you've got anything you want us to look into, email us. And we got just tons of responses by email and Twitter and Facebook and letters and everything. We just got like, I think more than a thousand haven't actually counted, but a lot. So we spent a lot of time just like sifting through all of these story ideas. And of course, we also had our own story ideas that we were interested in. And so we spent a couple of months like doing first a really broad pass and getting rid of most stories, which did not just didn't seem right for us. And one of the tips that came in, it was one of the shorter tips we got, you know, some of these tips were like paragraphs long, pages long, even. And this one was just a couple of lines, and it just said, like, it was from this woman who lived in the area in Mississippi and said, like, hey, there's this guy here who's been tried six times for the same crime, and I think he might be innocent. And, you know, what really stood out to us from that email wasn't the I think he might be innocent part, because there there's a lot of, like, I think he might be innocent stories. It was the he's been tried six times for the same crime. And our first response was like, what? That doesn't seem possible. And... So we did just a little bit of research and we're like, oh, it is possible. And it just seemed to, the very fact of that seemed to open up all of these questions about prosecutors and accountability and prosecutorial discretion and, you know, what is actually going on here in this case, but also in a larger sense. And it was just a story and an idea that we could not get out of our minds. And we spent a couple of months Researching and reporting out several stories before we committed to one, so it wasn't just this story, but multiple stories. But this story of Curtis Flowers was just the one that we none of us could stop thinking about, and so we decided that that was the one we were going to cover for the second season.
1: It's a pretty rich story, and it kind of speaks to what you you mentioned before about the first season. It's you're not so much trying to solve a mystery, although there's a, you know, I guess there's a mystery as to whether he's guilty or not. But that you're actually trying to tell a bigger story, that it's not just trying to solve a crime. You're actually trying to, you know, reveal some things about the criminal justice process. And, you know, that's what's so, so gratifying about listening to this podcast, because you listen to it and you're just surprised at, at each sort of new revelation you know, I don't want to go into give it, you know, ruin to people, give it too many details, but just in a broad sense, when you say somebody's been tried six times, how is that possible?
0: Right. And our criteria for stories when when we think about the kind of stories we want to be telling, you know, they have to be really interesting stories on their face and they have to they have to be fascinating enough as stories that they can sustain, you know, eight episodes or 12 episodes or just a long a long that they deserve a lot of time to tell them. But they do also have to sort of crack things open in a way. And I don't just mean for the case itself. So, like, for example, for the first season, one of the responses to that first season that I found the most gratifying was that all of a sudden people started thinking about this thing that they never really thought about before, which was clearance rates and, like, how good is my local law enforcement agency actually at solving crime? Like, maybe they're kind of crappy. And for a lot of people, that is true. And so people were doing this thing that, like, very few people ever do, which is they were, like, trying to figure out the clearance rates of their police agency or their sheriff's office or whatever it was. And that was that's the kind of response we're looking for. Like, we want to tell a story that grips people, but we also, you know, we're an investigative team. Like, we have a mandate to sort of, produce impact. And those are the kinds of impacts that we like is like not just holding the people we're looking at to account and applying an accountability measure to the story we're looking at, but we wanna we wanna spark that in other places as well. And so I think with this season, there's this this question of like what is your elected prosecutor doing? Like what is he doing on with juries? What is he doing with like the racial composition of juries in your area? What is he doing with his ability to choose what cases to bring or not to bring? Like, how is he using his discretion? And those are questions that everyone has a district attorney or a county attorney, like an elected prosecutor who has tremendous power. And so I think everyone should be asking these questions of of, their local officials.
1: Yeah, it's like with uh, like at schools when they when they put forward uh, you know mandatory advancement tests, and then suddenly the the curriculum is changed to just pass the test. It's not necessarily about giving you the best education. Mm-hmm. It's like once you set up these measures, you know maybe you're changing you know away from something that would would be the better thing to do. That once you you put these markers in there for whatever this type of uh, data you want to collect about crime you know the police and the the DA are, are working toward that they're maybe not working about maybe lessening crime they're they're trying to get certain types of numbers or measures down.
0: Well I think there's also a problem that a lot of this data is very difficult to get and so I think I think even just knowing how your elected officials or your law enforcement is doing can be a very difficult thing to to find out like I, I don't know if, if your producer has listened to episodes. Eight, <laughs> I have to remember what it is. <laughs> Episode eight of our second season. But finding out like what prosecutors are doing with jury selection and whether they're they're striking too many uh, people of color from juries, finding the answer to that question takes an insane amount of work. Like like a literal insane amount of work. It's it's crazy. And so these metrics are a lot of this stuff is kind of hidden, even though it's technically public information. It is very difficult for people to access.
2: Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that episode and it was that episode and I guess the the penultimate episode that you guys are putting out that just really kind of blew me away. Thank you. And so with the jury selection episode, I mean, you didn't have to go that far into (laughs) detail, but you did. In the episode, you describe a little bit what lengths you all took to go into that detail. But can you kind of recap that for us here?
0: One of the things that's happening in the Curtis Flowers case is that the prosecutor, Doug Evans, has been caught illegally striking black people off the jury. So you're not allowed... You're not allowed to strike black people off juries because they're black or or any race person off a jury because they're that race. Like that is constitutionally not allowed. But it's rare to catch people doing this because you have to show a certain level of intent. So Doug Evans, the prosecutor in the Curtis Flowers case, has actually been caught by the state Supreme Court and by a local judge doing this, engaging in this kind of discriminatory jury selection. But, you know, these high profile cases that actually make it to the state Supreme Court are very few and far between. I mean, there are hundreds of cases that a district attorney works on that that don't get nearly this level of scrutiny, either from appeals courts or from the public. Like, they're not covered in newspapers. They're not appealed. And so we had this question of, like, what is this guy doing in all of his other cases? That, that turned out to be a, a very difficult question to answer, again, because this is information that is not tracked. And I think it's a question that is it's so hard to answer because it, it entailed going to every courthouse in this guy's district, which I believe there were eight of them, and making scans of all of the jury lists and the voir dire transcripts, like all of the documentation of jury selection that exists for each of these cases. And even finding a list of how many cases had occurred in the past in, in this guy's tenure was incredibly difficult. Like, you would think that you could just, like, go onto a computer and look up, like, how many cases went to trial in this district in 2005. But that is not the way it works in most places, and certainly not in the district we were in. And so our reporter, Parker, had to Like show up at a county courthouse, slog her way through this giant docket book to even get a list of all of the cases that had gone to trial in the past 22 years, and then request all of the transcripts for all of those trials and then scan all of those. And then it was more than 100,000 pages at the end of it. And so then her and our data reporter, Will, had to take all of that 100 plus thousand pages of information and like turn it into actual like usable data which took months. And so it's it's just the sheer amount of work is like literally mind boggling. Like I am boggled by it as someone who was who did not have to do most of it. But that's what it takes if you want to answer that question, which is actually a pretty essential question. I mean, this is, a, this is a constitutional issue we're talking about. Like, is your prosecutor striking too many black people off of juries? Like the, the right to serve on a jury is a constitutionally guaranteed right. Like it's akin to voting. And so, if that is happening, that's a big problem. But finding out if it's happening is is monstrously difficult.
1: Yeah, it sounds a lot like a lot more work than most podcasters are doing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, again, again, and I should not say for like, journalists.
1: You, I mean, for journalists, yeah, that's something you should be doing if you want to tell that big story.
0: Right, and we are like we think of ourselves primarily as an investigative team who has a podcast. Like a podcast is our outlet, but the work is investigative journalism. So that's. Like, where we start is from the journalism, the investigative journalism, and the way we present the work to the world is as a podcast. And I will also say, like, we are very lucky that our company has chosen to make the resource commitment that it, because, because doing like our team is large and this is all we work on. And we are in this amazing position that I think is very rare where we have a five person team of full time reporters and producers. And then we also have like, you know, we have a data reporter who does a lot of work for us. And we have editors and we have other reporters. And I mean, that is a resource commitment that is just, it's a huge resource commitment. And we're very lucky to have it. And this kind of work is not possible without that kind of resource commitment.
2: Yeah, that episode, I mean, there were a few things that struck me about it. One, I, I remember laughing at you all describing the responses that you were getting to some of these challenges that you encountered going through these documents. I think I remember at one point you were trying to figure out what to do with all these hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. And the the solution was let's bring a scanner to the building. Right. And at one point, you know, someone in the in the building says, I can't believe you brought a a scanner to the
0: building. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: I wonder what reactions you all have been getting from that episode in particular, because you guys offered a pretty comprehensive look not only at the jury selection for Doug Evans, but I think a little bit of a broader look at at jury selection as well.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that that came across to you because it's definitely what we were going for. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what we try to do that distinguishes us from a lot of podcasts, I think, is like, we're really trying to show people what investigative journalism looks like. I hope that if someone listens to both seasons of our podcasts, at the end of the day they have like a much clearer vision of like what what it means to be an investigative journalism and what that work looks like. And how sometimes it is like calling twenty people with the same name, trying to track down a guy, which happened in the last episode. And sometimes it is just like digging through disgusting places looking for documents. But I think doing this on the radio, this is the kind of work that has been done for a long time by a lot of, you know, this is pretty standard stuff, but being able to do it in a podcast allows us to, like, have fun with it and and sort of show the process in an engaging way, I hope. And I think we also wouldn't be able to do this if we were just producing, like, a standard feature for National Public Radio or something. You know, we're allowed to, like, put music under things and, like, mix it up with production and, like, you know, layer sound and create scenes and show things that way. And so that's something that we try very hard to do because we want, like, there's a couple of reasons for this. Like, first, we think that the search for information is exciting. Like, this is a big narrative arc of our work in the podcast is, like, we have a question. How do we find out the answer to it? We go on this journey. And so we want to show that journey. I think it also lends a lot more credibility. If we say, I talk about this a lot too, but like, we want to be able to report our way to be able to make very strong statements. So, you know, we want to be able to get behind a microphone and say like, this is what's going on. This is who is screwing up. This is a problem. And the only way to get there is to report the heck out of a question. So you are just utterly fail safe. And I think there's a level of trust that I see when I when I look at like the response on social media or other places to this kind of thing, like, people trust us. And I think part of why they trust us, when we stand up there in front of a mic and say something, is a very strong statement about, like, someone doing something wrong. They believe us because, like, we've showed them what work we have done to get there. And so that's a big part of why we do that, too.
1: Yeah, that's the key to investigative journalism. You show your work. Right. And, you know, I admire the, you know, something that you mentioned, which is, Part of why you're doing this is to show people what an investigative journalism is. You, know, I can't tell you how sort of charged I am by that. But a lot of the things you're saying, this idea that some people, when they sort of talk about podcasting, it's you know they they see podcasting as one type of thing. Maybe it's like an NPR show or it's just two people on a microphone. But you know, it's really admirable when you when you hear people who are who are trying to push the boundaries a little bit. You know, maybe sort of expanding the expectations of what a podcast can be, you know, just because you're doing an investigative story type podcast doesn't need it it necessarily needs to fit in that, you know, NPR model. Maybe you can blow it out a little bit so that it can be something bigger.
0: Right. Like I, I think, you know, there's a very traditional way to present your findings. Like you find something out and the traditional way to present that is to just like write a script that says like, we analyzed a hundred thousand documents and we found the following and that's fine, but I think as much as, like, you can engage people in the search and, like, show how exciting that is. And also, like, this is what we've been doing for the past year, year and a half. Like, this has been our life. And so we want, we want our listeners to, like, see what our lives have been like, like, what we have been spending our time doing.
1: Yeah, I think one of my favorite moments was, I don't know if it was you or it was somebody else that they were looking for one of, you know, one of the witnesses to interview and they, and they just had the name and they were going all over this county and they showed up at some yeah. like diner.
0: Yeah. That was me and Madeline. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's,
1: I think it's him over there. Yeah. And then suddenly he invites you to sit down and to eat. Yeah. Actually this is, this is, let me, let me be podcasty audio wonky a little bit. Do you guys just walk around with a microphone on all the time? Because it yeah. seems, it seems <laughs> like that, You're like knock, knock, knock. Yes. Hi, we're from, you know, can I ask you some questions and and then just go right into it? Yeah. You're miked all the time. All the time.
0: Yeah. And we have really gigantic microphones. We have pretty sweet gear. And so our microphone is like probably... a. Foot and a half long, and it's in this giant windscreen. It's very big, and yet, like we spend so much time carrying that thing around that it just you get used to it. And I think once you're comfortable, if you're comfortable with a microphone, the person you're talking to won't find it weird. I think people get weirded out by microphones if like if, if they can tell that you're not comfortable with it.
1: It must make a really weird visual,
0: right? But like again, we've we've just we get so used to just always having it. Yeah, we record everything, everything, everything. I mean, especially with this reporting because the area we were reporting in like people's addresses were never right like if you look up someone on our you know white pages equivalent accurate if you would look someone up in a in a database whatever address would show up for them would almost certainly be wrong and their phone number would almost certainly be wrong like we reached so few people by phone in this reporting process it just was not it was just not the way to reach people. And so the vast 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 majority of our interviews, which I'm glad people have not been annoyed by because it's a, it, they have not been studio quality. Like they've been knocking on people's doors and often talking to people outside or sometimes in their house with like the dog and the kids running around and the air conditioning and these are just like sort of adverse re- recording situations, but that's just what it was. It was like literally just driving around, knocking on a door, the person we were looking for would invariably not live at that address, but the person who lived there would like know the second cousin of the person who used to live there and send us to another place. And we would go there and knock on a door and the person still wouldn't be there, but they'd send us to a third place. And like, eventually we would find the person.
1: You do not know how it warms my heart when you say that it, you know, people haven't complained about the, the sound quality because sometimes, you know, people who who have these sort of really produced podcasts are really concerned about sound quality like broadcast level quality and, you know, people will will give you a lot if if you've got something that's interesting, I think.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and like coming from Radio Diaries where we used to be so obsessive about sound, like we'd come to a house and we would turn off all the electronics and we would unplug the fridge and it was just like a super controlled environment. And this reporting was the opposite of that. But I think people, I actually have come to really embrace the ambi (laughs) because like, you know that's what the place sounded like. Like it sounded like crickets and cicadas and dogs barking and standing on people's porch because it was hot as hell for a lot of it. So most of our inter- a lot of interviews were outside. I think there's actually a texture that comes through that wouldn't if we were recording people in a sterile environment.
2: Mike and I are laughing about the, the <laughs> comment of turning off the refrigerator. Unplugging the refrigerator. Yeah. That's incredible. Th-
0: that
1: fits in with a lot of preconceptions I have about um public media.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> well also like you're showing up at someone's house if they're not prepared for you. Like it's one thing if you've set up the interview and you're like, okay, I'm coming by at four PM and I'm gonna park in front of your house and like we're gonna come and we're gonna sit down and like let's get everything totally in place, and we're going to talk about something that is not very threatening for you. That's a very different situation than, like, I'm going to knock on your door. You're going to have three loose pit bulls, and um, I'm going to ask you about a murder, and I'm going to ask you if maybe you knew the person who's being accused of the murder, or maybe you knew someone else who might be involved, or, like, you were arrested by the cops, or whatever it is, and maybe you were a jailhouse snitch, and, like, let's talk about it. Like, you don't want to be going into their house and unplugging their fridge.
1: Yeah, no, and there was one interview where it was clear that you were talking talking to a woman, like she was talking through a screen door Uh and it was like, you know, can we go into your house and can we like find a quiet corner and and make it (laughs) so that we can control it it is kind of ridiculous because how much the ambient sound can give you, especially when you think of how good digital recorders are, how good digital microphones are, that ambient sound is not so intrusive as to make the uh, recording terrible.
0: Right. And our mics are good, not to get all wonky, but like we have really nice mics. And so like cicadas sound like cicadas instead of just sounding like a mush of a mush of sound. And so I'm really I've like swung totally into the opposite direction. I'm like, yeah, let's just what's <laughs> the noisiest environment. Yeah, I, I really like it now. And there's a lot from a production standpoint you can do with the ambient sound that helps create mood. And so I'm, I'm all about it now.
2: Well, I also got the sense that you all really embedded yourselves within the community and they got to know you and maybe they eventually saw you guys as the women carrying around the microphones. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. But did you all, I I think you may have described this in one of the episodes, but did you move there to briefly to produce these episodes?
0: Oh, not briefly. Yeah. Madeline was there for a year. And we got various living situations, like some Airbnbs, and eventually we ended up renting a house that we still have, actually. So Madeline was there for almost a solid year. Natalie, our producer Natalie, was there for most of the year. And then the the other three of us, Raymond, Parker, and me, spent varying amounts of time there. But like Parker and Raymond were there for months. I was there, I have children, so I was there like 10 days a month, usually, over the course of a year. So, yeah, so we spent a lot of time there and, you know, Madeline and Natalie would go to church every Sunday. And so you meet a ton of people that way. And Winona is a small place. So, I mean, there was no one in Winona who didn't know who we were for sure. I mean, like I would be shocked if if there were.
1: Let me just put this out out there. you're, You're looking for a way to, you know, support the podcast, you know the podcast in the dark podcast house, perhaps, that maybe you could rent it out to, <laughs> to fans. Uh, in the, in the and I don't think
0: anyone wants to live there. Yeah, in the, uh, in,
1: in the dark experience, you know, just saying. Uh
0: huh. Yeah, <laughs> what that looks like is a very old house with a very odd layout, mold growing on the walls, $600 a month in this little town in Mississippi.
1: <laughs> you're selling it, you're really selling oh,
0: it. Oh man, I'll have to work on
2: my pitch for that. <laughs> You mentioned mold, and I, I swear <laughs> there will be a point here. For the last episode, this past episode, yeah. you all put out. You describe going into these old abandoned courthouses and other buildings, searching for documents, again, to make a really compelling and, I think, bold statement at the end of that episode about the Brady violation mm-hmm. and the evidence that you all uncovered that was not presented in court or to the defense or anything like that. And I think... This was again, this was the other episode that really blew me away. Um I mean, how did you all how did you all address this? I mean, this is something that people who were living through this case haven't even heard of,
0: yeah. I mean, so this is about this guy named Willie James Hempel. We received the material that had been turned over to the defense and discovery, which is the process by which the state gives the defense the investigative material, basically. And uh, the defense has always been told, this is everything. Like, this is all there is. And there are certain things that the state is required by law, by constitutional law, to turn over to the defense, including what is called exculpatory material and information on other suspects. And there's some other criteria of things that are required to turn over. And if you don't turn over that stuff, it's a, it's called a Brady violation. It's after a, a court case. And this file had always seemed very thin to us. Like, We looked through this file and it was just this mess of handwritten notes and like very few actual police, like really no police reports. There was like one sort of report from the state investigators a month later. But there was just a lot of things that seemed like they should be in the file that were not there. And the things that were there were kind of strange. So we've always, from the beginning, from the time we got those materials, we have this question of like, what is not in this file? Because it really seemed the whole file was a bit, almost the whole file was about Curtis Flowers. But again, like in this very strange way, in our work as reporters, we've covered a lot of cases, both, you know, everyone on our team has covered investigations before. So we've seen what a file looks like, like what an investigative file looks like. And this file did not look like any file we had ever seen before so there was this one single sheet of paper in there which was a miranda form like the form that you would use to sign away your rights if you're a suspect that says like i'm waiving my right to an attorney i have a right to remain remain silent and it was signed by this guy named willie james hempel and there was nothing else about this guy in the file and we were like what this is weird like he's the only there were two miranda forms in that file one was for curtis flowers and one was for this guy willie james hempel and the state has always maintained that this guy is nothing, that they talked to him for five minutes, and that was it, and they didn't confirm his alibi, and they didn't do anything, and it was just like, that was it. So we just went on the search to try to figure out what was up with this guy, and we thought it would be kind of simple, because like, it didn't seem like a very, it seemed like a fairly unique name. and. We didn't think we'd have that much trouble finding this guy and just clearing up, like, what happened? Like, why were you talked to and what did that look like? And that ended up just being a process that took months and months of, like, tracking this guy down and then also tracking down documents on him because there are no documents about him in the file save for that one sheet. And one of the places that we ended up finding a document that had not been turned over to the defense was in this like abandoned plastics factory called U.S. Correlate, which is where one of the counties is was storing like a tremendous amount of their materials. And I, of everyone on my team, I was lucky enough to not have to go to Correlate. It was while I was not in Mississippi. So I was spared this, but the rest of my team spent like a week in this factory, which was just disgusting and covered with mold and mouse droppings. I don't know if you've seen the, there's a video on our website and pictures and it, it's just it's a ridiculous place to store records like the mice were making nests in the docket books it, like there were just these old docket books from the 1800s that that had like mouse nests in them just like a really disgusting place but it's also like a trove of this public information that was just open to us and was sort of turned over to us by the county clerk so we found all these booking cards for the local law enforcement agencies in the county dating back years. And so we decided we wanted to just make a copy of all of them, like take pictures of all of them, because it's like a trove of information about what policing looked like in this area. And so we we photographed like thousands of these cards. I, we, we say the number in the podcast, like 8,000 and something. And it turned out like much later after we had entered all of that into a, a spreadsheet, we, this was like months later. We did a search for hemp pill and we found this booking card. And it had been one of the booking cards that we that we had scanned and we hadn't even noticed it at the time. And it turned up in our database. I was like, oh, man, there it is.
1: So you're about to wrap up this final episode. Thoughts on a third
0: season? There will be a third season. So definitely there will be a third season. But um we don't know what it is yet. So we are going to finish this up and then we are going to take some very well-deserved vacation with our whole team. And then we're going to come back fresh and, and figure it out.
1: Well, great. I, you know, Samara, thanks for coming on the podcast. I can't wait to get caught up with Nicole and to listen to these mind-blowing episodes, but also to, to hear how it all wraps
0: up. Great. Well, thank you guys so much. It was really great to talk to you. And Nicole, Great to great to talk to you. Thanks for listening.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's, I think, I was saying to Mike, I think it's my favorite thing that I've heard this year.
0: Oh, thank you. That's, that's awesome. Thanks so much. Take care. All right. Good talking to you guys. Bye.
1: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also download past episodes at Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Do you like our podcast? Would you like us to continue doing it? Then why not support our Patreon campaign? Go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and contribute. Help us to continue to tell stories of good journalism. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. This week's podcast was produced by Nicola Grisco, Amber Healy provided our web content, Nick Dupre, wrote our theme music nick hunter helped with our research and web content and i'm your host michael o'connell it's all journalism is produced in partnership with the association of alternative news media thanks for listening